Hey everyone, welcome to Go To A Radio. It's Jerry Scarlato, and today I have a conversation with Julianne Holt Lundstad. Julianne is a professor of psychology at Brigham Young University. She's also a researcher in loneliness and isolation, and she recently helped release the U.S. Surgeon General Advisory on Loneliness and Isolation, a very in-depth look on how those two aspects of our being can lead to negative health risks and if we overcome loneliness and isolation, how they can increase our health and increase our longevity and increase our vitality. We talk very in depth about certain aspects on how loneliness and isolation impact literally chronic disease. We talk about social connection. We talk about social connection through digital platforms and many other aspects. I'll go ahead and tell you that the audio on this is a little questionable. She is in Utah. Brigham Young is in Utah, Provo, Utah. And so her, the connection is just a little off. The audio is good quality. You can hear it, but it just sounds a little fuzzy from time to time. And if you're watching on video, again, it can be a little, I think the focus goes in and out from time to time. So just be patient with that. The conversation itself is great. So here it is with Julianne Holt-Lundstedt. So I appreciate you joining me, uh, especially not knowing anything about the podcast or not knowing anything about me. So that means a lot. Uh, I'll tell you that um, the reason that I asked you to be on, well, I'm very, very curious about social connection and how it affects our health. Here at our fitness center, we call our community the pack. So we talk very much in depth about how being around like-minded people has a significant impact on who you are, who you become, especially as you're striving for goals. So I'll be interested to hear a lot about that. But before I talk too much, why don't you tell me a little bit more about who you are and what you're into, how you got into social connection? Yeah. Um, so I've been doing research on this for a approximately two decades now. Uh, I started out doing research looking primarily at some of the biological basis for how psychosocial factors impact our health. And so a lot of that was in the context of stress and how relationships can either help us cope with stress or be sources of stress. Um, but then really realizing uh, how important our social connections are to our health that go beyond the context of stress. And so that's, uh, in essence, the, the work that I've been doing in this area. Uh, and that has uh, really taken a, a number of directions, uh, with the most recent being focused on um, the work uh, with the Surgeon General's advisory and uh, are you still there? Yep, I got you. Oh, my screen, everything went black. <laughs> um, yep, I still got you. Uh, but anyway, the the work with the Surgeon General's advisory uh, really now uh, working on how to translate some of this evidence into um, approaches that can address this um, from a number of angles and make real world impact. Uh, yes. And I looked at that and there's a lot of good information that I'd like to get to on that. 
I think going back to what you were talking about with biology, we can start by talking about a recent study that was published, I think, in the last year or so. Social relationship satisfaction and accumulation of chronic conditions and multimorbidity. I believe you were on that one. Hmm? So that was a very interesting study. And one of the phrases that I took out that was interesting, and it was, I think, right toward the beginning um, in the introduction, the strength of association between, and I'm, I'm inserting some words here, between relationship satisfaction and development of multimorbidity was comparable with those of well-established non-communicable disease risk factors, such as physical inactivity, smoking, and alcohol. That is very interesting. So can you talk more about the structure of the study and kind of what was found throughout? Yeah, so actually the, um, the evidence that was linking that to some of these um, other kinds of, or, or comparing it to other kinds of risk factors really began before that study. Um, and so for instance, some of my work focused on uh, looking at um, the effects across studies that uh, measured how socially connected people are following them over time and looking at how that impacts uh, or, or predicts who is living longer and healthier uh, lives versus those who are um, either have developed some kind of chronic illness or, or have died. Um, and when we look at uh, mortality, so just death, uh, we see that people who are more socially connected live longer, are more likely to um, have survived and, and be alive at, at longer follow-up periods, whereas people who are less socially connected are more likely to um, have, uh, have earlier death. And so this uh, data comes from studies across the globe, um, large-scale studies, and, uh, and the size of that effect, what we found was that averaged across these different studies, it's associated with a 50% odds greater odds of survival. And when we compare that to the effects um, of how uh, seeing, you know, some of these other factors that predict mortality, uh, when we benchmark them, what we found was that this was comparable to many of these other factors that of course we take quite seriously for our health, um, including some of the ones that you just named. Uh, 50% is significant, and uh, I can attest to that to a degree. My father, he's actually going to be 80 this year, and my great uncle, he's going to be, or he just turned 90, and neither one of them is like, I mean, my dad, he's taking care of himself off and on, at least through what I've been able to live through, and then as far as what I know, like my great uncle, he's hasn't really taken like specific care of himself through exercise and nutrition necessarily, but they're both very social people. They're both very connected. Like when you're in a room with them, you know, you're in a room with them. Um, so that, and they're very, vi like my 90 year old great uncle, he's very vibrant, can speak real well, you know, very animated with his hands and everything. So like what you're saying, I 
can see just through people around me, which I think, again, I don't think we appreciate. We put a lot of emphasis on exercise, nutrition, not smoking, reducing alcohol consumption. But this is just something that hasn't been as prevalent until potentially, sadly, the last couple of years. Uh, well, I mean, we, we see the, 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 in most recent years is when we're getting a lot more attention, but we're, if we look at data to show, you know, by a, a variety of different kinds of indicators and markers of, of social connection, uh, data dating back two decades, and in some case, some data dating back to the 1960s, we're seeing trends of declines in social connection um, across those decades. And so while um, it's risen to a level that's far more concerning for people um, in the last few years, uh, it certainly is, is um, not new and certainly not, um, you know, didn't begin with a pandemic. Uh, those, those trends were concerning even before the pandemic. Um, and some of those trends even showed declines even prior to, uh, you know, the widespread use of many social media tools and, and smartphones, which again, you know, are, are often the viewed as, as the culprit. Um, but, uh, you know, we're seeing some of these trends beginning even sooner than that. So uh, it, it, it's, there's likely many factors contributing to these declines. Um, but nonetheless, uh, evidence to suggest that, that a significant portion of, of the population seems to be disconnected in some way. Yeah, I was actually going to ask that specifically, um, since you mentioned social media. I'm wondering if there has been a, an association, a correlation, I guess, between um, in-person living and the migration toward online living through the advent of the internet and the growth of the internet and then the advent of social media and the growth of social media. Do you see a correlation with that progress? Yeah, um, so we do see correlations. Um, and so with correlations though, it's really difficult to interpret because let's say for instance, you see a correlation between social media use and um, loneliness. What you, you don't know is what is the direction? Is it that using social media makes us more lonely? Or is that when people are feeling lonely, they're more likely to use social media? Um, and so that's what's really challenging about correlational data. Um, however, uh, some of the trends that I mentioned, um, you know, while they, they uh, predated the, you know, kind of points in time, uh, where social media was introduced or smartphones became, um, you know, widespread, we do see a, a shift in that trajectory, meaning they were already, so for instance, if we look at the American Time Use Survey and we see the trends in spending time um, in isolation, we see that while it didn't begin uh, with that, we do see a change in the slope happening around the time of when smartphones became more common. And we also see a change in that slope around the time of the pandemic. So it wasn't that it started with those things, but they didn't help <laughs> and made things worse. <laughs> um, yeah. But, uh, you know, with, with 
whether it's social media or other forms of technology, um, there are both harms and benefits. And so we can't necessarily, um, you know, kind of lump all uses for all people as being all good or all bad, um, but rather there are, um, there have been some benefits that have been identified, but also uh, harms as well. And, and so the challenging part is how do we uh, harness some of the benefits and, and um, either re reduce or uh, eliminate some of these harms. Mitigate. And, and even with that also, um, because they are, you know, these tools are so rapidly changing and evolving, um, it's also really hard to keep up with it because by the time you recognize, say, a particular harm, it's already changed a bit. <laughs> um, and, and so th uh, that, that becomes really challenging uh, as well. Uh, most definitely. I'm sure, especially like you said, over the last couple of decades, like with the advent of new types of social media, new companies, even within each company, how they're changing, how they're doing things. It's just, I'm sure it's just all, all you can try to do is try and get as much real-time data as you can and look at generalizations as to like how each thing, what the characteristics maybe of how each thing works and then try and make changes based on that, which is, which is most definitely tough. And I like, I agree, like social media can have so many positive benefits to it. It's just challenging with the way that it's built and the way that it's structured. You just hope that people can start to make better decisions on how they use it. But like you said, you, you never really know if they're using it because of the feelings that they're having or if the social media is causing the feelings that are at. So that's always a tough thing with correlation, like you said. Um, I did find one other thing interesting in the study. So mm, the second takeaway, this was down at the bottom of the study, the second takeaway that we had all associations between, uh, there were associations between several types of relationships uh, that, that remain significant for all types of relationship except friendship. Did I read that correctly? All types of relationship except friend, except friendship is what uh, what the study said. So there wasn't a an association between friendship and multimorbidities, or am I was I interpreting that incorrectly? So um, I, I need to um, go Refresh back yourself. which study you're talking about. Um, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. so you know, one of the things to keep in mind is that. Uh, with any one particular study, it, you know, it's just that it's one study. And so part of sure. what I've tried to do in, in, you know, trying to communicate the evidence to others is looking across the totality of the evidence. And so when we look at, um, across, across studies, uh, what we see is that, uh, um, different kinds of relationships, uh, can be beneficial and in some cases, different kinds of relationships can fulfill different kinds of needs and have different kinds of benefits. And so, uh, uh, <clears throat> so it may not be surprising that we don't see effects 
for all relationships on all outcomes. Um, and some relationships may be more, more influential um, to certain kinds of outcomes than others. Uh, so, um, you know, depending on how, how you're measuring that. And so I would hate for anyone to go away from this thinking that friendships weren't important. Most definitely not. Yeah, no, because I mean, it, there are, um, you know, many studies that show that uh, our, our close relationships, including friendships, um, are impactful for a number of, of reasons. So uh, I, I would just hate for uh, that anything to be mis misinterpreted. <laughs> 100%. No, 100%. I just, when I pulled, when I was reading through and I saw that, I was like, well, I wonder what that's all about. But no, I'm 100% with you. I don't think that is certainly not the case. And I don't think that anybody would agree that that would be the case, even if that's what I was, I was presuming. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because um, there are some relationships that um, we spend a lot of time with. So the people that are in our home um, and the people that we work with are often very chronic sources of either support or <laughs> perhaps stress, right? <laughs> and so, um, and if we have no contact, so we live alone or we um, uh, are, are unemployed or, you know, whatever those circumstances are, those chronic conditions over time and that exposure over time can be quite influential. So in this instance, if people are having more, um, more, more exposure to relationships, uh, say inside the home and see that they are more influential, it may be because of, of simply, um, uh, how, how much exposure we have to different relationships. Mm. That's interesting. So essentially, the more time you spend, like literally time you spend around a person or around a relationship, that's going to potentially affect your association with, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's one hypothesis, right? The, and so that's actually one of the things that scientists are really trying to grapple with is um, what kind of you know, even as we think about how much time do we need to spend around other people and, and in particular relationships, how frequently should we be getting together with friends or how frequently should we be, you know, how, how much time do we need in order to get a health benefit? In fact, that's a question I got quite often during the pandemic um, as everyone was staying home and this idea of, well, well, just how much time or, or how much time isolated does it, well, um, does it take before some of these health, uh, risks occur and, and how much time do you need in order for a benefit? And so that's something that, um, not only are we grappling with for, uh, policy kinds of recommendations that could be anything from, uh, you know, incarcerated individuals who are in solitary confinement, how much time do they need to spend per day with others to even just health guidelines for, um, you know, the average citizen of 
They want, you know, they, they want to uh, avoid health risks and, and um, benefit from the protective effects of social connection. You know, how much time do they need? And that's something that we're reviewing the evidence on right now and, and trying to identify some of that. So let's get into the Surgeon General Advisory, our epidemic of loneliness and isolation. And you talk about how loneliness and isolation, uh, let's back up. Is there a difference between loneliness and isolation? Yes, uh, they, they can go hand in hand, but not always. So um, isolation is thought to be more objective. It's either objectively being alone or having few relationships or, or infrequent social contact. Uh, whereas loneliness is really more of a subjective feeling. Um, so it might be, um, subjectively feeling alone, uh, that is, uh, really truly characterized as, as a distressing feeling, uh, but that stems from the discrepancy between one's desired level of connection and one's actual level of connection. So clearly objectively being alone can increase your risk of feeling alone. And so they often go hand in hand. Um, however, there are people who are objectively alone or, or isolated and, but don't feel lonely. Um, they, it, it either might be something that's, you know, quite temporary, um, and it's associated with feelings of solitude, or, um, you know, they, they're not feeling lonely. Um, and conversely, you can be surrounded by other people, uh, you, you know, and, and uh, still feel profoundly lonely. Um, you'll often hear people talk about being feeling lonely in a crowd or lonely at a party or even lonely within a relationship. Um, and so uh, these two are, are different, um, but they can often, but not always coexist. And so it, but one thing that's important to note is that both uh, have been linked to important uh, outcomes and put people at risk for a variety of negative kinds of outcomes. Uh, so, so both need to be taken seriously. Interesting. So you can be alone, but not lonely, and you can be surrounded by people and still be lonely. Um, I can certainly, again, see that a lot in different areas and through different relationships. Um, I am curious, so you can be alone, isolated, mm -hmm. but not lonely, and that can still result in negative health outcomes. Yes. What, what does that look like? Yeah. Um, so, uh, there may be people who either, and, and I should be clear that can either choose to be alone, um, or by circumstances end up, um, in, in a situation where they are, are spending significant time in isolation. And um, 
one of the things that we have very robust evidence on is that people who are more um, uh, isolated are at increased risk for earlier mortality. There was just a, a large meta-analysis published in, in Nature, Human Behavior, that showed that um, people who are isolated, even if they don't feel lonely, um, had a significantly increased risk for premature death um, or earlier death. Um, and so, uh, you know, we have quite good evidence of that. So you might be wondering like, well, why? <laughs> um, and uh, so, you, you know, people understand the how Loneliness is very distressing, and so it might be associated with a stress response. Um, but feeling or being objectively alone can also um, put our, our body into a, a state that can increase risk. So it can happen in a, in a number of, of ways. Um, so first off, what we see is that um, humans are social species. And that uh, that it's biologically adaptive for us to be with others because throughout human history, we've needed to rely on others for survival. So our our, our brains and bodies have adapted to expect um, uh, proximity to others. Our brain has to be much more active um, and alert if we are alone. Um, either because we need to be much more vigilant to a variety of threats and challenges in our environment. Um, and that, and there, it's just more taxing to have to deal with the demands of everyday life on our own, rather than being able to share that load with others. Um, and so that takes more um, mental cognitive effort, but that our brains also signal peripheral areas of our body that also um, uh, can become dysregulated uh, and that, that, you know, when experienced on a chronic basis can uh, increase our risk for various uh, chronic conditions. But it also can come down to very practical kinds of things as well, um, such as um, when, you know, when we're not around others, uh, if something were to happen in a crisis situation, not having others to um, help out, whether that is, um, uh, you know, some kind of, you know, just recently we had a, a massive storm near me. Um, there's, and, you know, oftentimes it's, it's our, our relationships and, and our neighbors that often help out. But if you don't have that or have others you can rely on, you're less likely to um, be able to uh, recover from those. Um, it's also very practical in the sense of um, just our everyday behaviors of having people who are looking out for you and reminding you to get some sleep or reminding you to take your medication or reminding you to go see a doctor when needed to other kinds of crisis situations where in a cardiac event, if you're alone and there's no one else to call emergency response, you're less likely to survive that. Um, so it really um, can, can 
be some of these long-term kinds of biological responses to also just some of the practical everyday kinds of situations that um, can influence uh, not only our health and well-being, but in some cases, ultimately, uh, our survival it can be life and death. Uh, that is a very good point. That's something that I had not thought through as far as the isolation part. Um, getting support from others, having emotional support available for you, even if you may not think that you're alone or may not. I'm so for instance, like I'm the kind of person I, I think that I can deal with the emotional things that I have going on, but certainly any of our team can usually say, Jerry, what's going on? Because I'm showing it in some way, shape or form. And if I don't have that person there to, like you said, number one, tell me, Hey, what's going on or ask me what's going on. Then I'm just going to let that keep building and building, which is going to have some sort of psychological, potentially biological or neurological effect down the road. And then just not having, like you said, the disaster thing was a very good example. If you have something go on, um, you, you fall down a set of stairs, there's nobody around, you have a disaster in your backyard through a, a tornado and there's no emotional support and no people there to help pick, literally pick everything up, pick up the pieces, then, uh, yeah, man, I could definitely see now how that plays a big part in, um, not, or, well, I guess literally and figuratively in increasing your chances of not surviving that. <laughs> yeah. And even just recovery from it. I mean, I think about, you know, just in my own neighborhood, there was a, a massive storm and many people had flooding and mud coming in their houses. And, you know, there was an outpouring of people like not only checking in, are you okay? <laughs> but then um, when people who did have problems, people pitching in to help out, um, you know, coming over with shop backs or shovels or whatever. <laughs> um, uh, you know, recovery from these kinds of, of crises um, can be can be drastically different if you're having to deal with that on your own versus um, having the support of others around you. Um, which brings me to the three you say in the advisory. So influence, um, isolation and loneliness can influence biology, psychology and behavior. We've kind of mentioned all of those in this conversation to, to a big degree, actually. Uh, biology, you mentioned the neuropeptide oxytocin. I would say the neurotransmitters, uh, dopamine and serotonin would also fit into that category, are significantly influenced by connection with other people. Uh, can you talk more about that? Oxytocin, I think, especially is a very interesting molecule just as uh, how it affects us and um, I don't think we know enough about it to really appreciate it enough. Yeah. Um, so it's a neuropeptide that's mostly associated with um, uh, lactation and, and labor and delivery, uh, but it's critically important in terms of social bonding. And so if you think about, you know, survival of the species, uh, having a, a, you know, a, a newborn offspring is incredibly difficult. <laughs> it requires lots of uh, energy, attention, and resources. And if we didn't have that bond um, uh, that uh, 
you know, the, the species would not survive. <laughs> um, and in fact, um, in, in uh, animals where they block the oxytocin receptors, um, animals will completely neglect their young. Um, and so um, this has been uh, really often then kind of dubbed, uh, you know, the bonding hormone or sometimes the love hormone, but it's really quite, um, actually quite complex uh, and seems to be associated with a, a variety of, of kinds of, of responses, including things like defense, um, which, you know, may not look very loving, um, <laughs> but... Uh, but it certainly um, is, especially when you're protecting your family or protecting yes, your loved ones. Yes, yeah. Um, and so... Uh, um, it can also be linked to um, stress regulation. But one thing that, that I think is particularly interesting is its um, connection to physical touch. And so um, it's really associated with um, physical affection. And so you see releases of an endogenous oxytocin when people are physically affectionate, uh, whether that is, um, you know, hand-holding, um, hugging um, and other more intimate forms of, of, of uh, physical affection. And uh, it, it, I think also because it's been implicated in, in the regulation of, of some uh, biological systems that are linked to health, uh, it, it may be one of those pathways that helps us understand how it is that relationships can impact these health outcomes. But I think what might be particularly interesting is as we begin to uh, interact socially at a distance and more remotely, that one of the things that we're losing is physical touch. And, uh, and, and so uh, it's one of those things that we're, we don't have a good substitute for. <laughs> uh, and I think we need to learn a bit more about the role of touch and how that is implicated in some of these positive outcomes uh, and what the implications are um, as we go towards a, um, increasingly towards a touchless society. Well, and that's, I think, especially relevant to the last couple of years touching somebody, it was somewhat taboo uh, to, for there for, you know, a year, a couple of years, even shaking hands. It's you know, at a certain point, it's like, do I shake this person's hands anymore? Or do, what do I do? So, you know, me, our family is a bunch of Italians. So like, that's all we do is hug and touch and shake and this, that, and the other things. So that was, and it's, it's, it's especially <laughs> challenging. Yeah. yeah. My dad, don't get close to my dad. He's old school Italian and you uh, get too close to him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. No, but that's especially, that's a really good point about the touch um, and being in close proximity to people and how that's having a huge effect on us through neuropeptides and neurotransmitters that we rely on to literally, like you suggested, survive. Yeah. And, you know, of course, we could spend a whole hour just talking about touch because even that's complicated because, you know, there's it, it, touch is so complicated, too, because there's the kind of touch that's really nice and welcome and warm and, um, you know, a warm greeting or um, something that shows uh, love and affection. But unwanted touch can be 
can be bad too. So that, that can get really complicated too. Most definitely. Um, so the second one there was psychology and you mentioned purpose and meaning and psychology and how uh, purpose and meaning affect so much of our life. That's something that we definitely talk about here. If you don't have the right purpose for why you're pursuing what you're pursuing, it's probably not going to last very long is what we say to our members. If you're coming here to work out because your doctor told you to do it, that's not going to, it's not going to be a lasting effect for you. But if you have a stronger purpose, if you have a stronger meaning to it, if it's because when you're 70, 80 years old, you want to be able to play with your grandkids on the floor, then you're going to probably in all likelihood actually move toward that more likely. So talk to me about how purpose plays a role in all this. Yeah. So, uh, interestingly, when surveys have been done both, you know, nationally in the U S and, um, more globally in other countries, uh, when people are asked what brings purpose and meaning to their lives over and over again, we see that top of the list is meaningful relationships with family and friends. Um, and so our relationships always seem to top the list of, of what brings us meaning and purpose. And so this meaning and purpose uh, can influence our health, not only in, in terms of some of the ways it influences us uh, psychologically and, and our well-being and, and feeling fulfilled uh, and, and satisfaction with our lives. But as you mentioned, that meaning and purpose can drive health-related behaviors. So we're more likely to take better care of ourselves so that we can be around for our loved ones. We're less likely to take risks, um, whether that is... Um, you know, just do, engaging in dangerous kinds of activities <laughs> um, or, or other kinds of, of uh, risk-taking behavior because we know that others are relying upon us and depend on us and that we are needed and others you know, need us. And so, uh, you know, we're less likely to do that. Uh, so those are ways that this meaning and purpose can then translate to uh, better kinds of, of health outcomes. Um, yes, I can definitely see how lacking in, well, if you don't have meaningful relationships, if you don't have relationships that feel like they have a purpose to you, I can, I mean, obviously that's going to play a huge part in your health outcomes. And like I said, that's something that we talk about with our members when it comes to their purpose. And we try as much as possible to help make the connection between them and what they're doing and the people around them. And that's going back to your point, like that's really what it comes down to is how your health is affecting also the people around you. And if you're in poor health, then that's going to have an impact on them. And so therefore, hopefully what you can do is make that connection between working out, eating better, not as a chore, but as a benefit to the people around you, your spouse, your friends and family, uh, your kids and so on. Yeah. And when we lack a, a sense of meaning and purpose, we often um, uh, can, can 
flail. Um, we, we either may not be motivated to um, pursue any kind of goal, um, including uh, we may be more likely to do whatever is easiest in the moment or feels good, uh, but that uh, may not necessarily have long-term kinds of uh, benefits for ourselves or others. Um, and so when we have a sense of meaning and purpose, it really can shift us towards longer term outlook uh, and in, including all sorts of healthier kinds of, of, of behaviors. Uh, that's a really great point. Not having purpose can lead us to having more instant gratification seeking in our lives instead of being long-term focused on how that will lead to potentially poor ramifications down the road if we're constantly seeking that instant gratification. That's, that's a really good point, especially. Um, the last one was behaviors. And this last point, I greatly appreciate. This is, again, something I've referenced. I feel like I've referenced my dad like five times in this interview already. At any rate, it goes to show connection is important. Um, but dad used to say to me when I was in high school, well, I think it was more like him getting on me for the people I was hanging around with. So the sentence that I pulled from the advisory is, it is clear that it is not just the presence of social connection and social support, but the nature of the behaviors and norms and one's social network that influence health-related behavior. So who you're around will potentially dictate who you become. And I think that is a very important point that many of us don't think about a, a lot. So what were some of the, what were, tell me more about your thoughts on that statement. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, our, our relationships can be very influential for both good and for bad. Um, so when it comes to health-related behaviors, we know that um, those who have, uh, you know, their peer group is, um, who are, if their peer group are, are smokers, they're more likely to be smokers. If their peer group tends to binge drink, they're more likely to binge drink. Um, so, uh, you know, while relationships often encourage healthier kinds of behaviors, they can also encourage un unhealthy behaviors. Um, some, in some cases, uh, peer groups can also uh, influence people in ways that um, that may benefit their group, but be destructive to other groups. Um, and and so you know, really, either discriminatory um, or um, are more likely to to um, you know see their own group in more favorable ways, and so behave in ways that are are unfavorable. So. You know, you can think of like gang related behavior um, or um, uh, other kinds of, of groups that um, may may kind of put their own needs above uh, uh, the 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 needs and well-being of, say, the entire community. Um, yeah. And so really. Um, uh, thinking about not only co social connection at the individual level, but 
connected communities are so important. And um, thinking about how uh, the people that you associate with, are they um, not only uh, helping you become more connected and healthier, but um, a healthier community. Uh, and, and so thinking, you know, like, like your dad said, uh, <laughs> the, you know, the people that you, you associate with can, um, uh, have, have tremendous amount of, of impact on that. Um, and then the last thing, no, that's very, the, the community, I think as just by and large is something that we we so easily overlook. I think sometimes we just caught, get caught up in our own world and we don't really spend enough time paying attention to how we're affecting the our community at large. Um, I think that's kind of showing right now with how we're kind of trying to be pulled apart and put into different categories. And that is what it is and probably a whole nother talk in and of itself. But um, so in the advisory, talk about six pillars to advance social connection. And there were two particularly that I thought were intriguing. Pillar number four, reform of digital environments. And pillar number six, let's cultivate a culture of connection. Those are very good. Um, were there any things that you found, any particular strategies that you found in reforming a digital environment that are worth bringing up? Well, so I should mention that I'm also currently serving on a National Academy of Science consensus committee that will be issuing a report in about a month um, with recommendations. So I can't really speak to that um, right now. Uh, but as, as, um, as far as like some of the recommendations that are in the advisory, uh, some of, of those recommendations are looking at uh, to what extent there are um, the the environments are uh, <sighs> there are so many now it's swimming in my head I'm like which which one do I talk about <laughs> um, but uh, there are a few. So one is around creating greater transparency so that um, that users and, you know, individual users as well as uh, those who might regulate uh, these know exactly uh, what what um, is, is happening um, and can make happening behind and, on the other side of the curtain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there there's a lot of um, lack of transparency that's that's going on, and this also contributes to challenges for researchers to, as we talked about, um, clearly identify harms. And so, uh, a first step in that is is transparency, but that's not enough because even if there's transparency, uh, we need to be able to have tools to be able to act on, on that. So if, uh, say, an individual user, uh, if we, for example, identify that um, spending you know, more than two hours a day on it 
is associated with you know, these poor outcomes. I'm just using this as a hypothetical example. Um, many people find it very difficult, um, particularly parents um, who are trying to get their kids off it um, because these devices have been designed to capture our attention and they do a really good job. <laughs> um, and so it's, uh, you know, it's really difficult, not only um, for parents to get their kids off it, but even parents themselves to get off it or adults in general. Um, and so having the, um, the capability to do that. Uh, and, and so that's just one example, but of course, uh, there are um, uh, many more that, that could be explored there, but transparency and the ability to do something about that information uh, is uh, so that users have more autonomy um, to see, be able to uh, get rid of things they don't want to see or want to use or be able to make choices about how they use it and to make those choices easy um, to, to do. Uh, so that, that's, I think, kind of a, a I know it's a big one and that's a lot easier said than done. <laughs> well, and it most definitely is. Uh, I did a review on the podcast maybe three months, three, four months ago at this point on a book called Stolen Focus. It was written by a guy named Johan Hari. And it, that's what the whole book is about essentially is social media and, and how basically our phones and our apps have taken our lives over. And he talks a lot about very similar things. And I think for us, I think for us, it's really awareness, like being aware of how we're interacting with the phone and then making the necessary, uh, protecting your downside sometimes by making adjustments to your phones. For instance, changing your phone from normal color to black and white. That alone has been shown to decrease your usage of the phone. Um, you can put blockers on your phone. There's all kinds of things that we can do, but we have to choose to do it. And we have to be aware that it's actually a problem and that it's affecting our relationships and those around us as well. And that, that can be challenging, certainly, but it has to begin with our own personal awareness, I think. Yeah, yeah. And, and then when we are aware, having being able to actually do something about it um, <laughs> and so it, you know, it's, it's really difficult when um, functioning in today's society often is now more and more required to be, um, you know, tickets are digital, you're, um, you know, checking in on a flight is often digital. Like every, almost every aspect of, of our lives is becoming digitized. And so just, uh, um, you know, saying, oh, just put your phones down. <laughs> um, it's not that easy, right? Right, right. Uh, and so we need to be able to have ways to um, have greater autonomy and that, uh, that, that uh, also that the information that we see, especially on that's fed to us, is often um, done so in biased ways that can, um, and sometimes in some cases, uh, you know, 
manipulate behavior. And, and so, um, there needs to be, uh, greater ability to, um, uh, make, make choices about what we see and what we don't see. Potentially decide on your own, if you want to see something instead of letting some algorithm decide for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And like you said, that's a big mountain to climb. That's a big, big, big mountain to climb. Um, Julianne, I don't want to take too much more of your time. We're already at about 50 minutes. So I want to make sure that we get off here with plenty of time. Pillar number six, cultivate a culture of connection. If you had your way, <laughs> what was what, what would one thing be that would that we could do to help cultivate a culture of connection? So, uh, I mean, it's, the way you phrased it, I think is, um, interesting because it's a culture of connection has to be created. Right. Um, and each one of us plays our part and in, in, in large part, this is based on our, our collective norms. Um, and so what we need is norms of kindness, norms of seeing each other as complex human beings that, um, you know, occasionally, uh, aren't, aren't entirely perfect, but are, um, you know, that we are all worthwhile and worthy of respect and kindness. And oftentimes we treat others in ways that, uh, does not respect our common humanity. <laughs> and so, uh, the more we can cultivate a, a culture of, of kindness and, and respect, even respect in differences, it doesn't mean we all have to think the same way, but that we can have, uh, productive conversations and find common ground and, um, and, you know, give, people the benefit of a doubt when, when, um, you know, our, our human failings, <laughs> um, emerge from time to time, uh, that, that I think we can all start to come to more of a place where we do feel more connected to others. Um, even if, if we don't necessarily always agree on, on everything. And it would be a boring world, I think, if we did agree on everything. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, definitely starts with grace. And I am glad that you had grace with this poor connection that we had going on and technology showing its will and uh, fighting against this interview. But I think I appreciate your time. And uh, the last question that I do have, is there anywhere in particular you would like us to find you? Um, you can find me on, um, the, so the, my website, which is, uh, julianneholtlunstad.com. Uh, you can find my Ted talk, um, it's a TEDx. Um, and then, uh, you can find me on various social media from Instagram to LinkedIn to Twitter. Um, uh, I, I'm my, my, uh, activity on it is pretty intermittent. <laughs> given I, I'm, I'm somewhat ambivalent about using it because <laughs> I, I don't necessarily want other, to encourage other people to constantly be on it. But um, I do try to connect with others um, from time to time through those channels. 
Very good. Well, I appreciate your work and I appreciate you spending time with me, Julianne. Uh, thank you so much. Take care. Thank you so much.